kicked out of the church. Kicked out of the church. How many of you have been kicked out of a classroom before in school? Put your hand up nice and high. It's all right. I was kicked out of a classroom many, many times. It never felt great. But now that I'm older, I understand why. In fact, I remember when I was, uh, when I was in high school, my dad was a pastor at a church across the street from my small town high school. And one day, my math teacher, I was doing something that wasn't allowed in our classroom, and she kicked me out of the classroom, made me go sit in the hallway, Little did I know that as I was in the hallway, she was calling my dad at the church across the street. He walked across the street, walked into the hallway, had a little talk with me outside my math classroom. Kicked out of class. Well, this passage has to do with someone being kicked out of the church. And it doesn't feel nice. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel loving. As we read this text, we're we're, we're concerned. What does this mean Don't even associate. Don't eat with somebody. Purge the evil from among you. Does a God of love, does a loving church really disassociate? Does does a loving church really cancel people? Does a loving church really kick people out? And that's what we're dealing with today. That is kind of the core message of this chapter. And in order to kind of understand what Paul is getting at here and to see the love in this letter, the love of the action of kicking somebody out of a church or the love in the action of me getting kicked out of my classroom for a moment of time, it's in hopes of restoration, correction. And so in order to really understand this text, I want to consider the situation first here. What is going on in Corinth? For the first four chapters, we've talked about leadership idolatry and people were falling into different camps kind of worshiping different leaders. Now we're transitioning into this, really, this sexualized culture, this sexualized church. Again, over the next two months, we're going to talk about sex inside of marriage, sex outside of marriage. We're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to dive into it. And it starts here with this, in chapter 5 here, with this man. It tells us right here in verse 1, this man, there's sexual immorality among you and a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. The reason that it's worded that way, his father's my father's wife. This man isn't sleeping with his mom. It's good, right? But he is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Not much better. He's indulging. There's a man in this church who's committing the act of incest. He's indulging in sexual sin. Sexual immorality, this word here, it, it, it comes from porneia, which means all, and I'm going to talk more about this next week. So if you're the person who wants to dive deep on this topic of sex, that's coming next week and the week after and the week after and the week after and the week after probably. We're going to be talking about it a lot. But just so you know, as we kind of get into this next section of the letter of 1 Corinthians, sexual immorality, it comes from the word porneia. It means any sexual activity outside of a marriage of one man and one woman. That's the biblical standard. So that's, that's where we're going. We're going to talk about that. There's many layers to, to applying the Bible's teaching to that well. But to set us up, that's what it means. And so here is a man in this church who is indulging in sexual sin. There's this personal indulgence in sin. And it's not just sexual immorality. One of the things that the church needs to be careful about is not putting sexual sin on a pedestal while ignoring other sins. Paul's going to address other sins. We're going to get to that as we go. But look at verse 11. He says, "But uh, But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So there's that sin. But he lists greed, idolatry, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. 
So in this church, in the first century, there's these different sins. The one that is called out here specifically in the beginning of chapter 5 is sexual immorality. But there's these other sins that people in the church are indulging in. And part of the issue, part of the situation in the church here is that the church has tolerated these sins. They're okay with it. They're sweeping it under the rug. Verse 1, he says, there's this sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. The non-Christians wouldn't even commit this act of sexual immorality. And yet in your community, which is supposed to be a community of holiness, which is supposed to be a community that is representing Jesus to the world and following Jesus' ethic in life related to sexuality, related to giving your stuff away, related to building people up, all these, all these sins given to us in verse 11, saying, you are the community of Christ. You are the ones claiming to be followers of Jesus. You are the representations of Jesus to the world, and you are allowing, you're tolerating this sin among you that not even the pagans, the non-believers commit. And, and, and so we, we need to keep in mind here, church family, that we ought not to tolerate the sin. That we don't just accept sin, that we don't sweep sin under the rug, that we don't just make nice and cozy with sin. We're going to talk about this as we go. There's grace for sinners, but the church is a community that sin ought to come out into the light and we ought to deal with it. And so that's what this passage is dealing with. We're going to talk about that as we go through this. That's a little bit of the situation. The community is just tolerating sin. They're they're abusing grace. Look at verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. You are arrogant. What what he means by this in in verse 3, he says, your boasting is not good. So this church community, they're arrogant and they're boasting. The question is, are they arrogant and boasting in what this man is doing? That's just disgusting and heinous. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think what is happening here is that They are arrogant. This church is arrogant and boasting in the grace of God. They're taking advantage of the grace of God. They're abusing the grace of God. They are saying we are able to do whatever we want because God's grace covers us. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death in my place, they believed the gospel. Paul came, remember Paul's writing this letter, he planted the church, he was there for a year and a half, you can read about this in Acts chapter 18, he's telling them about the good news of Jesus, that there's freedom in Jesus, that there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus, that it's a gift of grace, he starts out the letter of 1 Corinthians talking about your your new identity, that you have been sanctified, and so they're thinking, here's what I think, different people interpret this two ways, one is that they're boasting in the sin, the other is that they're boasting in their forgiveness of sin without really repenting of their sin, right? And, and Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, do I boast all the more so that grace can, or do I sin all the more so that grace can abound? By no means. That was something that the early church was tempted to do. Because God forgives me, therefore I can go and do whatever I want. I think that's what's happening here in this church. They're, they're abusing the grace of God. They're not actually repenting of sin. They're, they're willfully sinning saying, well, God will forgive me. And so Paul is about to teach them that that's not true faith, that's not true repentance, that's not life with Jesus. And then the other piece of the situation happening here in this chapter and in this context is that they have misinterpreted excommunication. So Paul has written an earlier letter, look at verse 9. There's a lost letter to the church of Corinth that comes before 1 Corinthians, We have two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but there's a lost letter. 
And in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So in his first letter, he was dealing with sexual immorality, and he's saying, don't associate with the sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So what they had done is they had received that first letter, and they said, we're not supposed to associate with the sexually immoral. That's non-Christians. That's people outside of our church. Therefore, we're going to cut ties with non-Christians, and we're going to create a holy huddle. He's saying, no, you misinterpreted what I meant by don't associate with sexually immoral or the swindlers or the greedy or the idolaters. I don't don't mean the non-Christians because if I meant that, you would have to leave this world, right? You'd have to move out west and form a little commune, which would turn into a cult. You can't get away from the world. Christians don't bury their heads in the sand. They don't run away from the sexually immoral sinners who are non-Christians. They don't run away from the greedy. They don't run away from the revilers. They don't run away from, from, from the pagans. No, they, we live among them. We are in the world, but not of the world, right? We're supposed to be a city within a city. And so what Paul is actually saying here is that you are, if somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus, yet they're living an open, an open life of sin, an unrepentant lifestyle of sin, the relationship that you have with them, that your church has with them, changes. The, the, the Catholic Church would use this term excommunication. It just means to be put on the outside, to have a change of status in relationship, to have membership revoked, to have attending privileges revoked. And so that's what we're going to dive into. That's the situation. What is the solution? What is Paul's solution for this man sleeping with his mother-in-law and and the communal tolerance of the sin, the abuse of grace, and and, and then excommunication? What's his solution? His solution is, number one, to mourn. I want us to catch this, and I'm glad that we spent some time lamenting this morning. Look at verse 2. He says, and you, are, and you are arrogant. Remember, so he's addressing sin in the church. What's our first thing to do when sin becomes, comes into the light? Whether it's in our own life, or the life of a friend, or the life of a leader, or the life of a member. The first thing that we do is mourn. We lament. We cry out. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The verse finishes by saying, let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's the next step, excommunication, right? So two steps. Mourn, lament, and then remove the sinner. I'm going to go to remove the sinner in just a minute. I want to pause here on this this call for us to mourn, to lament for just a moment. I I want us, church family, to know that, that when sin is brought into the light, we can't run past the step of mourning of lamenting, of crying out. This is a biblical pattern that we see over and over again. I'm going to give you two examples. First one is in, in Nehemiah. Flip over to Nehemiah. It's on uh, page 398 in the Pew Bible. 398 in the Pew Bible. Nehemiah, this is a, a, a man of God who, as the, the exiled Israelites were coming back into Jerusalem after being in exile in Babylon, they're coming back into the city, and they, they were exiled because of their sin. It was God disciplining them for their sin. Now they're coming back into the city. They need to rebuild their walls, rebuild their temple, and there's, there's, there's mourning and lamenting because of the state of God's people, because sin has wreaked havoc on the community of God. And look at how Nehemiah responds. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. He says, As soon as I heard these words, 
There's words about the, the, the wall being destroyed, the temple being destroyed. He says, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which I have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. See, see how he mourns, how he laments, how he repents, he confesses. That's the first step with sin. And, and Jesus models for this as, as well. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19, verses 4 through 41 through 42, it's on page 879 in the Pew Bible. This is before Jesus, this is in Passion Week, right after the triumphal entry when he comes into Jerusalem and they celebrate him as king. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, Jesus is looking out over a city of people who are about to reject him, over a city who is going to choose their own ideas of how life works. They're going to choose their own sinful impulses over repentance and following Jesus to the cross. And what he does first is to lament, to mourn, to weep. And so those of you struggling with sin, worried about being called out and excommunicated, you need to hear that the, my heart as one of your pastors, that our heart in this church is that as you bring sin into light, we want a posture of mourning, of lamenting, of praying, of seeking God, of loving one another patiently and pursuing God together, okay? It's not to just try and find the sin behind every bush, right? And sometimes people have been really wounded by the church and leaders and even friends by when they, when they confessed, when they finally felt convicted by the Holy Spirit about some type of sin and then they brought it into light. People jumped to attack them rather than mourning and lamenting and approaching the throne of grace with them, right? So that's what we do, church, for one another. If somebody ever bears their soul to you and confesses their sin to you, go to the throne of grace with them and mourn, and lament, and seek forgiveness. That's step number one. Now, if that step doesn't lead to a person living in sin actually repenting, right, here's the issue, the, the situation, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the situation here is that there's this man living in willful sin. He's not repenting, and part of it is because the community that he is in isn't calling him to repent, they're, they're arrogant, they're abusing grace, they're saying, not a big deal, not a big deal. You're forgiven, you're forgiven. Follow your flesh, take what you want, God's grace is good. Keep going, brother. Nope, that's not how sin is dealt with. And so if this man isn't willing to repent himself, if he's not mourning his own sin, if he's not lamenting his own sin, his community, his church, Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So step one of mourning, lamenting, doesn't lead to repenting. The person whose sin has come into the light, if they're boasting about it, if they're unwilling to change, the next step, the next call is to, yes, excommunicate that person from the church. 
to remove them from fellowship. That's what we're told in verse 2. That's what we're told in verse 5. He says, um, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He, Paul is teaching here, deliver him over to the cravings of his flesh, to the world, the flesh, and the devil, these three categories for, for sin. Deliver him over to it. And as he's delivered over to it, hopefully he will realize the error of his ways. As his fellowship with his church community is broken, hopefully that will get the Holy Spirit to convict him and his soul will be saved. And then he can return to the community. And then verses uh, uh, 6 through 8 here, are, are, they're using this imagery, this imagery of leavened bread. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and the last couple verses here, 9 through 13, again, it talks about excommunicating the person in the community who claims to be a follower of Jesus yet they're giving you no indication that their life is willing to be surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Right? That makes sense. It's like saying, I'm a part of this community because we gather around Jesus, right? It's what we do at Park. We, we, every week we, we drink the cup and we eat the bread to be reminded that we're in Christ and that we're gathered around Jesus. And if you say you're part of this community because you want to gather around Jesus, but you're not willing to obey what Jesus calls you to obey, you're not part of the community. So please leave. And there's a change of relational connection here. It, it, there's, there's different ways that people have interpreted this. What really happens here is just a change in the relationship. Right? Like when somebody's actions don't line up with the profession of their faith, some of you have probably experienced this you no longer do Bible study with them because they, they're not living in repentance. There's, there's just this weird change in relationship. The way that you used to have fellowship changes. You don't have this deep soul connection where you pray together, where you, where you care about the deep spiritual things of life together. You don't come around the table anymore together. And so when Paul says, um, don't even eat with such a one, in a couple chapters he's going to be talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. I, think he's at, I don't think he's telling us to cut all relational ties with somebody who's living in willful sin. He's calling us to change the nature of the relationship, that we no longer gather around the Lord's table with that person, that we no longer have the same type of relational connection, that that person is an outsider among the church. Okay, so that is our next step, is to, to excommunicate the person. He gives us a couple different, uh, Paul is building on this, out of a biblical framework, it starts with the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. I'm not going to have you flip there, but if you're a note taker and if you're the type who wants to go back and see this for yourself, write that down and go back and read this passage. This is the premise that Paul gives us for excommunicating a person in verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is yeast. Right? Today I have unleavened bread because it felt weird to have leavened bread up here with this passage. Unleavened bread. This is, this is matzah. This is what the Israelites ate during Passover. And this is the imagery that Paul's giving them. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. The festival that he's referring to is the festival of unleavened bread. It was a, it's a seven-day experience where 
where the Israelites, they would remember God delivering them out of Egypt. And he prepared them to go into the wilderness with unleavened bread, flat bread. It's easier to pack. It It has similar nutrition, but it's easier to pack. It doesn't spoil as well. And also, leaven throughout Scripture, they could have leavened bread. They could have bread with yeast in it, but throughout the Scriptures, yeast represents sin. And so, what God was doing in the Passover is he, very practical. I want you to bring bread with you that's easier to bring on a trip. Like when you go to the boundary waters of the mountains, you bring freeze-dried food, right? Very practical reason why God had them bring unleavened bread, but also a spiritual reason. I want you to physically see this bread that doesn't have yeast in it, and the Jews would know when they, when they would read that, that, oh, yeast symbolizes sin. God is wanting us to know that, that he wants us to be a community that's, that's getting rid of its sin. And, and so he says, in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice or the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This community, the church, the people of God is supposed to be a place of sincerity and truth. And so that's the imagery that Paul is using there. Also in Matthew 18, I think Paul, Paul knows this teaching. He's, he's likely referring back to it. It's, it's framing his thinking. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, it gives us a pattern for church discipline. That if, that if people in the church are are fighting. He says, go one-on-one, talk to each other first. If that doesn't work, take two or three witnesses. Try and have an honest conversation to, to rid the conflict, rid the sin in the situation. If that doesn't work, bring it to the church. It's when we bring you up on a Sunday morning and you tell us all the problems. No, that's not how it works. It's when a few trusted leaders help to work through the situation. This is the pattern for sin. And, and in Matthew 18, Paul says, if that doesn't work, if it gets to the point that one-on-one it didn't work, that one in a couple didn't work, and then kind of some church leadership, some official help in this situation doesn't work, consider this person a Gentile. That would be a non-believer. Consider this person a non-follower of Jesus. He's saying that if, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you're unwilling to deal with your sin, there's no course of action other than for your, for your brothers and sisters in Jesus to consider you a non brother or sister in Jesus. The only evidence that we're in Jesus is if we're willing to follow Jesus. And this doesn't mean like instant, right? Like sometimes our, our, like it takes a little while for our sin to convict us. Sometimes somebody confronts us with sin and, and we, we defend or we justify or we cover up for a period of time. I don't know how long that period of time goes before we say we, we can't verify your salvation, but that's the pattern. That if you persist, like this man in 1 Corinthians 5, persisting in sexual immorality, unwilling to repent, unwilling to line himself up underneath the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ, there's no evidence that he's a Christian. The prodigal son, I'm not going to flip there either, but just consider how the prodigal son is allowed to follow his desires, right? The son comes to the dad, I want my inheritance. I want to go and live my life. I want to indulge the flesh. I want to experience the world. He gives in to the temptations of the devil, and the father lets him go. That's part of excommunication. It's like, if if you want to go sleep with your mother-in-law, you can go do that, but not here. That's not called for in this community. That's not Jesus' ethic. If you want to go and be greedy and lean into greed, go. You can do that. Not here. 
You want to be a swindler? You want to take advantage of people? Go and do that. Not here. This is a holy place where people don't get taken advantage of. You understand how, how excommunication, how, how being canceled from the church can be a good thing? And then in Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to flip there either, but it just tells us that God hands people over to the desires of their flesh. That's this whole point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where, where Paul is saying, let this person be removed from you. Move them out of the community. Let them seek the desires of their flesh. If they're not willing to fall underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, if they want to be led by the world, the flesh, and the devil, then put them in the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the hopes of this is that this person would turn and repent. And so that's the, the next step here, the reasons. Why would Paul, it starts with, God, in the Old Testament, right, removed the leaven from among you. And, and a person who didn't do that, actually, they were removed from the community. That's, if you read Exodus chapter 12, that's what you'll find out. So God removes people from the community who aren't willing to be repentant. Jesus teaches us to remove people from the community if they're not willing to be repentant. And now Paul teaches us to remove people from the community if they're not willing to be repentant. So it's not Paul's teaching. He's picking up on what God has taught. He's picking up on what Jesus has taught. So the question is why, right? It just seems harsh. But people don't have a hard time understanding why I should have got kicked out of my math class for being a fool, right? And so it's weird. Sometimes we create different standards for a church community. Like, well, they're not allowed to create boundaries. Well, boundaries are really good. And so we have, but we have to ask this question, why? What's the reason for excommunication? The first one is to save the person's soul. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, he's picking up on a teaching of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be quick on this. We've got a little more work to do. Sit with me this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. This is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We love the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? We, love to, we at least love to quote it. I don't know that many of us actually love to do it because it's hard, but blessed are the meek, blessed are the, the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are, are the poor in spirit. Well, this is also the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is teaching. The reason that we have severe response towards sin, that we take sin seriously, is because it will eat away our soul and it will remove us from Christ for all of eternity. And Jesus here is saying, it's better to, and this is, this is metaphorically, Jesus isn't actually teaching us self-mutilation. He's trying to get to the heart. He's saying, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, it's so severe that you need to take severe measures if your hand causes you to sin, it's so severe, take severe measures. Please don't go home and chop off a hand. That's not what Jesus is telling you to do. It's, it's this imagery for how severe we ought to treat sin. Because if we don't deal with sin, it's like leaven in bread. It's like yeast in bread. It grows and grows and grows and it takes over. 
And so Jesus here is calling us to deal with sin so that we don't lose our soul. Paul, same exact thing. Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's following Jesus' pattern. So that's the first reason that we deal with sin seriously. That's the first reason why in a situation like this where somebody is willfully sinning, living an unrepentant lifestyle, why excommunication would be a step. The second reason is because we want to build a community of sincerity and truth. Right? I love this in verse 8. At the end of this kind of these couple verses about the Passover and the leaven and the unleavened bread, he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, not with the yeast, or not with the sin of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The church is to be a community of sincerity. This, this word, it, it's like if sun shines down and reveals what's there, it also can be translated to purity. The church family, the church community is to be a place where, where there's sincerity, where there's purity, and where there's truth. Right? You don't have to wonder. You shouldn't have to wonder if you're going to be mistreated. You shouldn't have to wonder if you're going to be abused. You shouldn't have to wonder if someone's going to take advantage of you in the church, right? The world is painful. And, and people are searching for a safe place. And this, not, not the Sunday morning hour and a half in a building, this people is where the world is supposed to go to find safety. Absence of, what does Paul list for us here in verse 11? Absence of, this is where people are supposed to go to be able to find absence of, sec- oh, there go my notes, sexual immorality, right? This is, this is a place where people are supposed to come, the people of God, people are supposed to be able to run to the people of God and not be taken, of, taken advantage of sexually. That's why this matters. Because in a world filled with sexual abuse and immorality, the church needs to be a safe place. Your marriage needs to be a safe place. Right? That, that's what God's after. That's his heart for the church. The church needs to be a, a, a place, absence of greed. Where, where contentment is found. Where, do, where you don't have to worry about people wanting your stuff. And you don't have to worry about all the comparison games. Amen? We're supposed to be a safe family absent of greed. We're supposed to be a safe family absence of idolatry. We're supposed to worship God. Not a leader, not a politician, not a new philosophy, amen? This is to be a safe place where you're not expected to worship a certain leader or politician or philosophy, but to worship God, Yahweh, the one who reigns above all others. It's a safe place. The church is to be a safe place free of revilers, a reviler is somebody who, who tears other people down with their words. They're abusive. The church is supposed to be a safe place from abuse, whether it's physical or verbal or emotional or sexual or mental. The church is to be a safe place that's absent of drunkards and all of the pain that the abuse of alcohol can create for people. The church is to be a safe place from that. 
And the church is to be a safe place from swindlers. This, this word swindlers, it's people who take advantage of other people. You, you see the glory here? Why Paul would be so serious? And it's not Paul. Remember, he's following Jesus. He's following God. Why God would be so serious about us dealing with our sin in the light and repenting, and then if there's a little leaven in the, in the bread to, to remove it before it destroys the whole bread. I've heard another pastor say, sorry about the analogy, I was a former youth pastor, a little poop in the brownie. Right? You don't want to eat that brownie. That's, that's the similar idea here. Paul is saying, Jesus has taught, God is setting up this family where people can come and be safe, a community of sincerity and truth that's absence of absent of all of this heinous stuff that wreaks havoc on us. This is the reason why the Bible has such a harsh response to those living in willful, habitual sin. Now, even as you look at that list, who in here isn't guilty of some sexual immorality? Who in here doesn't have elements of greed in their life? Who in here doesn't commit idolatry, worshiping other things rather than God? Some of us are revilers, some of us are drunkards, some of us are, are swindlers, or maybe we're not. Maybe we, we struggle with some of these things. And so the point here isn't that if you struggle with any of these things, you need to be removed. The point here is that all of us struggle with these things. We're going to get to this more next week, so come back next week. Look at verse 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. I'm giving away next week's punchline, but we have to do it now. Chapter 6, verse 11 Paul has just listed these same sins, and then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we used to be defined by these things. These things used to have control over our lives, but now we are being made new. We've been forgiven for our sin. We've also been given the Holy Spirit of God, which is helping us to grow up. And so the church ought to be coming more and more and more a safe place for the hurting to find a home, absent of all of these sins and her devastating effects. And oh, church, how you and I need that from each other. How you and I need to be able to be part of a community group and be, find friends who won't do this stuff to us. And so when the church hasn't lived up to that, I am sorry this is what we are striving after, to be a community of sincerity and truth. And so a couple questions that I just want to, ask, to have you ask yourself this upcoming week, and these are in the Park Weekly. Seven reflection questions from verse 11. Before we judge the outsider, right, or the people in the pew next to us, let's do some self-reflection. First one, am I, well, am I known well enough to be called out and held accountable? Church isn't just a passive thing that you attend to hear a little talk and sing some songs. Church is a place that you belong with people who know you deep enough to actually call you out and say, hey, you're, you're acting kind of greedy. Are you giving in to greed? You're, you're kind of swindling that person. You're kind of taking advantage of your employees or your neighbor. Are you, are you, is that a Jesus-like thing to do? We need to be known well enough to be called out and held accountable. Second question, am I seeking sexual purity or have... Or have I made peace with sexual sin? We're not looking for perfection. In Jesus, you are perfected. We are wanting to grow into who we actually are in Jesus. So these questions help to us to assess. Am I seeking sexual purity? 
Or have I made peace with sexual sin? Am I seeking contentment or am I always wanting more? Am I seeking to worship the creator or have I settled for creation? Am I seeking to build others up or am I tearing others down? Am I seeking to be sober-minded or am I drinking too much? Am I seeking to bless others or use them for personal gain? Regardless of how you answer those questions, there's forgiveness and freedom and growth offered us in Jesus Christ. He longs for you and I, his whole purpose of drawing us together and our whole purpose of covenanting together is to be a safe place for people to experience the goodness of God, the purity of God, the holiness of God as it's worked out in our own lives. And so regardless of how you answer that, you're welcome to the table to receive forgiveness in Jesus and new life in Jesus. We don't gather around our own righteousness. We gather around the righteousness of Jesus, imputed to us, given to us, and then transforming us. Amen, church? And so every week when we gather at Park Community Church, we take communion. Because we are a community of sincerity and truth that's built upon the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus. This, this bread, the wafer in front of you, it represents the unleavened bread of Jesus' perfect life lived for us. And the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus' sacrificial life, sacrificial death in our place. Isn't that amazing? That, pull, pull out that communion packet in front of you, and if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're striving to follow Jesus, if you want to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and let him call the shots in your life, communion is here for you. Peel back that first layer and pull out that waiver and notice how it's wafer and notice how it's flat unleavened no yeast in it no ability to rise no no infection growing or festering in it that's the body of jesus represents his body which had no sin and i love here in verse first corinthians chapter five how he even says look back at it He says, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That's what he says about us. If we're in Jesus, we really are unleavened. We really are without sin. We really don't have its stain. Why? The end of verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This morning, let's take the bread together, remembering that it represents Jesus, the perfect righteousness for us. As Jesus sat with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he passed the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And after passing the bread, he took a cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the pure one, the righteous one, the one with no leaven, no stain of sin, the one who shed his blood on our behalf, Lord, I pray more and more that, Jesus, that you would be preeminent here in our church, that you would build us into a a holy family, a, a safe family, a community, 
without sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkards or swindlers. Lord, for your glory, that we would make much of you in this world, for our good and the good of those who do life with us, Lord, may we be like Jesus to others and for the advancement of your gospel. Lord Jesus, cleanse us. I thank you for cleansing us. Help us to walk in our, in our, in our newfound righteousness. We're desperate for you. We love you.